I'm Denise. She's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise. She's a fiction editor. And together, we're The Editing Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Editing Podcast. Hello. So we're delighted to welcome an author guest this week, and it's one of Louise's clients. Be afraid, Harnby. Be very afraid. <laughs> I know. Now I know how you felt when we talked to Kendall McDonald. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're absolutely thrilled to have an independent author on the editing podcast, and it's the wonderful David Unger. David and I have been working together for a few years now, and I love line editing for him. So this week we're talking to David about story creation and revision. So hello, David. Hello, and very happy to be here with you today. Oh, it's great to have you. So, David, can you first tell listeners um, quickly where you live and what else you do for a living? I can do that. Uh, I live in Southern California, and I'm a, uh, I have a PhD in psychology, so I have a little bit of a therapy practice, but mostly I've been an educator uh, and I taught graduate students sort of how to do therapy. Uh, so my two main occupations are educator and therapist and more recently author. Uh -huh. David, can I ask you, uh, what made you want to start writing? Was there something or someone who inspired you? I mean, you're a, you're a seasoned academic writer. So how did the journey from psychotherapy to fiction come about? Well, I have to uh, go back to my childhood, you know, which is something us therapists do. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, best friend's father was a writer, and uh -huh. he had an office full of books, floor to ceiling, papers everywhere, and it was clearly his workspace, and I could see him at work. Yeah. And whenever my friend and I would uh, pass by his office. He'd welcome us in and chat with us about how the day was going. And what I realized is I felt included in his work. And my father went off to work in the morning, came back in the evening, and didn't talk much about work. And I realized I was excluded from his work. I really had no idea what he was doing. Yeah. So that yeah think about being included and seeing him at work. And he, his, he was just available to us and chatting with us. And I thought, oh, that's a pretty nifty kind of job to have. Oh. So that was what got me started. That's lovely, yeah. I think that's a really nice way to think back on something that's sort of a ger it? germ of something started so yeah. young yeah. and that you've been able to fulfill that um, alongside your, your sort of more traditional career in, in psychotherapy. I wasn't, truth be told, a very good student. And thinking you about- You weren't a good well, student, did you? I was, well, not to my teachers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thinking about it now, I realized I didn't feel included. I was taught to, not with. And so it wasn't until I got to UCLA, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I had, took a psychology course, and the teacher, professor, had us break into dyads, small groups, and talk with each other. And I'd always gotten in trouble for talking to <laughs> students during class. But now he was teaching in an engaging way and by his method, teaching me that I could learn 
from my peers and not just from the person in the front of the room. So that's interesting because that thing that first inspired you, that inclusiveness, that followed right. right through to your later years. That, that's obviously something that's really important to you. It is. And so I, uh, I'm a big believer in relationships. It's sort of one of the things I learned in grad school, just huh. how important is our relationship to ourselves, to others, to the world. And so I did academically write a, a relationship book, one for men, one for women. And I've worked a lot with teenagers. So I wrote another one for parents of teenagers. And I liked the, that writing and I liked teaching classes and I liked, uh, and I still do, doing the therapy. But I realized I wanted, they were a little confining. I wanted to find a way to take what I'd learned as a therapist and apply it in another way. And I love to read mysteries. I've been reading them all my life. And I thought, mm. well, maybe I could apply what I've learned in another format. And so that's what got me to take an attempt at writing a mystery. Um, Denise, just you, you won't know this, but um, one of the things that I really love about David's books is that he does, you can really see that, that um, therapeutic knowledge in his plots like he uses those as, as, as plot lines. And I've not seen, I've said this to David before, I've not seen any other author take, you know, there are lots of tools and hooks that all, different authors use. And, mm -hmm. and David has his own little thing and um, that I think is unique to him. And, and, and I love that about that, his writing. It makes me really um, intrigued to read some, actually. You should, they're, yes. they're lovely. Uh -huh. They really yeah. are. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something, Louise, that you told me is I do try to sneak in uh, these little therapy lessons, but I, I don't want them to sound like it's a self-help book. Yeah. You told me that one of the phrases that I use in my book, you uh, you use, and that's the phrase horrible eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my husband said to me the other day, is that I was talking about like someone and saying oh they're just horribleizing and he said is that a word and I said yes it's a word and it's a it's a word that 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 I that I learned from somebody else I didn't just make it up and and he's a he's a therapist and a teacher so he, it's definitely a word it's a real word yeah yeah, yeah. it's a good yeah. word yeah yeah so yeah and it's a, a phenomenon horribleizing I think we could all relate to that but we've got something and we just make it way worse than it is so, yeah yeah yeah, and these sneak into your 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 stories, or, um, these these little ideas, these little nuggets, and so yeah. that you're you're reading, um, you're you're you I'm I'm like I'll be working through the book, and and I'll I'll come up this little thing, and I think one of the things I sometimes have to do is just rein David in a bit because sometimes he gets so excited about um the <laughs> things that he loves about therapy <laughs> that he gets that um he maybe gets a bit distracted from the mystery, and I'm like. So you need to rein them I back just, I just in need again. To sometimes like say, oh, how about, you know, and, um, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, absolutely still letting that, that voice come through because um, it's, um, it sounds like quite a unique voice actually. With it really of, is. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and I think we're going to talk about this later, but um, David, you write in first person, don't you? Um, I so, do. so it, it is a very immediate voice. Yeah. Well, the reason I did that was um, one of the authors that I like, who you may or may not know, a fellow by the name of Kinky Friedman. Uh, he's a um, country western singer and he has a band and he 
took up writing uh, mysteries. And in the mysteries, he's himself, but he put himself in Greenwich Village, New York. But he's a musician and he gets wrapped up into these mysteries. And uh, President Clinton was said he was one of his favorite authors. And he's very funny, very irreverent, uh, a little naughty. And, but I love that he was himself in his books. And I thought, yeah. oh, mm. let me take a shot at that. So uh, I've yeah. done that. Yeah. So David, Louise tells me that your protagonist Sleuth actually shares your name. So how much of him is you and vice versa? And, and was that um, decision to develop them like that as a result directly of, of reading um, those books? Kinky. Kinky, yeah. Kinky, yes. He's a name you can remember, you know. It certainly uh, is. Not <laughs> his last name, but you know, who was that guy? Kinky something or other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you always remember that. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I, well, I know that in mysteries um, that the protagonist needs to have some flaw, some issue that becomes a challenge for them in the solving of the mystery. Sort of like when uh, Indiana Jones had the uh, issue with snakes and he goes, oh, oh no, mm -hmm. not snakes. Oh. But then he has to go through a whole field of snakes to uh, get to the other side. So I thought, well, what, uh, what do I, um, I'm not flawless. So I had a few different things I could choose from. <laughs> I, I decided I tend to rush things and I want to get to the point already. Come on, move on, move on. So I thought, okay, well, why don't I make that a, an issue that with this character and he doesn't like foreplay. He wants to finish the meal before he starts it. He wants to get on with it already. So, so always I do in a rush, get, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's always in a rush to get things over with already. And, and, and just to say as well, Denise, that this character, um, David, in the books, you know, he 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 always um, he has a habit of telling people that he he you know he he he'll apologize for it so he'll say like nice. you know look i'm sorry that, that i'm just gonna go straight in here because i don't like foreplay and and <laughs> <laughs> and so you sometimes see these kind of little battles that he has with people while he's building relationships with them because right. he'll be um he'll be kind of trying to sort of you know explain his flaws and there is the characterization so lovely yeah. sounds great well, I think, you know, as a therapist, I'm inclined to self-reflection. So it's sort of like, I know this is an issue for me, and yet I can't stop myself. <laughs> yeah. so, um, I'd like to think I exaggerated a little bit in the book, but uh, those who know me well may say, no, that's a pretty good reference. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but can I just go back to something I asked you a little bit earlier? Um, I'm, I'm about sort of ideas for your, your, your books. I mean, in terms of sure. the... Um, the actual sort of individual plots that you've done with the books you've written so far. What, what's your inspiration there in terms of, you know, like the settings and stuff like that? Right. Um, well, the first book I wrote was called uh, A Lesson in Sex and Murder. They're all called A Lesson in Something because I am a teacher and I do want the books to be have a little bit of a lesson in them. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was a new professor at this university and uh, the uh, academic dean called me into their office and said, our human sexuality teacher has had an emergency and they can't teach the course. 
and we'd like you to teach it. And so since I was the new kid on the block, I said, sure. And I figured, you know, it's sex. You know, I know a little bit about that. <laughs> but, I, but it didn't take me long to realize I knew sort of backseat sex. I didn't know front seat sex. And so, so that was sort of, you know, and people are interested in reading about sex. I thought, well, this is something I could write about. So, uh, so that part is all the truth. But I made up this part where I sent my character to a uh, convention where they go, where they're sex therapists and they go there to learn about how to teach graduate students to work with people around their sexual issues. So that was the backdrop for the first book. And I thought, well, this is good. Oh, and by I the way, Denise, someone got murdered. <laughs> oh, along the way. <laughs> along the way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They, uh, yeah, well, there's always a murder in the There books. is. Good yeah. to know. Yeah, well, I, I have a little misgivings about all the murders. So, uh, but since um, it, it is a mystery, they usually don't want the mystery of why the inflation is what it is or whatever. You know, they want the mystery <laughs> no. like, but it gets killed and what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I yeah. think uh, sex, sex and murder are a pretty good combination, really. They're yeah. pretty, pretty reliable. Yeah. So I, so that was the first one. And I, what I liked about it was that the conference was time limited and uh. I'm not, not going to talk to you about my dissertation. But my, <laughs> I told and, David that we might not go down that line because it does come up though. Yeah. David right. interested in time. My character jokes about it frequently. Uh, but one of the things that with the dissertation was, it was about, time and how the task expands and contracts to fit the time available, mm -hmm. which I actually learned from a UK civil servant. They wrote a book about that, which <laughs> inspired me. Oh. So but like if they tell you you have a week to do something, it takes a week. If they tell you a day, it takes a day. So, uh, so I thought, well, I'll put myself in a time limited place and I need to solve the mystery by the end of the event. Right, so, right. So the first one was a sex conference. I went to a music festival, and um, then I went to a, a mystery writers conference, which I'd love to talk about if you have a minute. I'll just say, I th the Mystery Writers of America have an annual convention, and I thought, oh, how cool. Let me go where all these mystery writers are and have a mystery at the mystery writers. Did you actually go to one uh, in real I, life? A long time ago. Okay. So uh, I hadn't been to one recently, but I thought, I'd ne sometimes I write about things I know nothing about. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> stop oh, me though. So, but... I I knew that sometimes people have these parties where they have a mystery at their party and everybody sort of gets a role to play and you have to guess who done it at the party. Yeah, yeah. I've never been to one of those. I but I bought a a game of you know that you could buy to host one of those parties and I thought, "Oh, why don't I go to this mystery conference and at the mystery conference they play this game." Yeah, so, like dressing up Cluedo, isn't it? Yeah. Like so, 
Yeah, so I, but then I got, so that was kind of exciting for me, but then I had this thought which was sort of terrifying and very exhilarating. I thought, well, look, there are gonna be 300 some people at this uh, convention, and they're gonna have to break people into all these groups so that every group has 10 people and they all have to solve the mystery. And I said, but I said, well, why not have in each group, why not have a Sherlock Holmes? Why not have a Miss Marple? Why not have a Clouseau? So if they ever make a movie of this book, I think it'll be very funny because you're going to have 30 Inspector Clouseaus. <laughs> 30 Nancy Drews. And, yeah. <laughs> Nancy Drews are there. So uh, that was kind of fun. So anyway, I like to put my characters in a time-limited place and uh, see what happens to them. I think that's a really good tip for, for some, um, perhaps some independent authors who are new to writing and who are struggling to think, think of a way of containing their plots. I think that, I mean, I'm not saying, of course, you don't have to do it like that, but that focusing on some sort of way, some sort of mechanism whereby um, there's a natural time is is, yeah. is it's is, like murder on the orient express or something you have absolutely. to solve it by the time you get to the end of the yeah. line don't you yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i suppose that makes you really focus on how you um pace your book and how you mm. structure the the narrative in it as well right well i i sometimes when i write these books i go okay this thing ends on friday and i go oh wow it's thursday and i <laughs> don't have a clue <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you got to get your um, you got to get your thinking hat on then, haven't you? I so, do. um, David, can we talk a little bit about your actual writing process? Um, about where and when you carry out your writing, since you don't do it full time, and and maybe who who you use as a sounding board for your stories and plots. Sure. Well, I ever since I got my first typewriter when I was, I don't know, in my early teens, I've loved to write. And I used to love to write letters to people. And so I've, I've always enjoyed writing. And as I said, I was inspired by my friend's dad. So I try to write every day. I've had years where I've had months when I haven't written, but for the most part, I write, I want to write every day. I don't care how much I write. Mm -hmm. I don't particularly care when I write, but it's like a magnet that draws me to it. So I, I really enjoy the writing and more and more I'm enjoying it. And now I'm spending more and more time with it. So sometimes when I'm writing, I don't, well, I, uh, when I start a book, I have a sentence, maybe a paragraph about what the book is going to be about, but I don't really know. Like I go, okay, I'm going to go to this convention with the, with the uh, different detectives and somebody's going to get killed and something's <laughs> going to happen. So sometimes when I write, I know what the next few scenes are going to be and I get really excited. So I wake up early and I just, I got to get in there right. Other times I have no idea what I'm going to do next. I feel stuck and I'm not liking the book, but I know I got to slug it out and just mm. get there and uh, write. And uh, I was taught as a therapist, you have to start where you are. Mm. So mm. if I don't know where I am, that's where I'm starting. And I think it'll yeah. come. That's so really interesting. Kind of, oh, sorry, 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 Louise. 
I was just going to say quickly that you're in you're in good company because I've been listening to I'm always quite interested in whether authors really plan deeply an outline or whether they kind of pants it you know that that have you heard that phrase David pantsing when you, no. you fly, fly by the seat of your pants and so oh, authors, authors like you and Holland Coburn and I think um, Lee Child that's that you all do it the same way you, you start and you and you and you and you go whereas someone like David Baldacci or um, I think um, James Patterson, I th people like them, they, they, and Jeffrey Deaver, he's another one. They, they plan, they, they plan everything, every, every chapter, every scene. And only once they've got that really detailed outline done, do they then actually write the book. So it's sort of half written in, in an outline version. Um, and, right. and neither is wrong or right. It's just different personalities and what works. Well, when I was in grad school, I was taught to trust the process, which mm -hmm. basically means mm -hmm. trust yourself. So what works for me may not work for you. So I found this really works for me. And mm -hmm. I trust. And what I like about it is it's a mystery to me. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, f I find that whole, I I've heard people say that before, that they start, uh, start writing and they don't know what's going to happen. And I find that um, uh, magical almost. I can't imagine yeah, yeah. How, how that actually works. I think if I were ever to write, I would be a planner. A planner. I think yeah. I definitely would. But I love this idea that you can start and it's a journey and you don't know where your characters are going to take you. And if you and if you hit a block, that you'll write your way through that and come out the yeah. other side. And it yeah. may not be where you imagined it, but it will move your it will move your story on somehow. I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it requires such courage in, mm. in a sense to me. That's how it feels. It requires such courage and and passion. I guess because you have to be um really you have to really trust your creativity I think well you know when you meet somebody you we're doing this together we're trusting that this will lead to that and I think it's the same thing when you meet people and you meet your characters in the book you learn who they are and they have a way of doing things and for me I don't really know who my characters are until the second draft because uh, then I sort of have a better sense. Of, plus, I don't know who done it until the end of the book. So, uh, <laughs> I find that amazing that you you start writing a mystery and you don't know who done it when you start. Oh. You start. Well, it. I don't know who done or who did it or how they did it. I don't know any of that. <laughs> you, so, David, I'm, you mentioned there that you um, that you don't know who your characters are until you get to your second draft. So, how do you go about that uh, revision process? How many drafts do you tend to create before you actually send it out for editing before it ends up with Louise? Sure. Uh, let me answer that, but I want to tell you one other thing that I found for me writing. When I started to write the self-help books, I tried to think, well, who reads self-help books? And I pictured some middle-aged reader in the middle of the country who I had no idea who they were, but I, I tried to write for them and I got, you know, I don't know who that person is. Mm -hmm. So when I write the mysteries now, I have one really good friend who I know will read them. <laughs> and so I write for him because he's Oh, the that's lovely. That he's really the is. Yeah, I'm going to be talking with him about it and he's going to know the references. He's going to know this. And I go, well, yeah, not everybody's going to know everything, mm -hmm. but the 
but he will. And I think if he likes it, others will too. So I just and, wanted... and do you use him as a sounding board, David? Do you, do well, you, do you? No. <laughs> no, okay. okay. That, that was that was a well, quick I, answer. Well, no. Sometimes I do. I have I uh, the book about the mystery took place in Las Vegas, and he and I went to Las Vegas, and we did a um, you know sort of scouted it out for the book, and uh, so I gave him like the first twenty pages to look at, and uh, he gave me some feedback. But really, the person who's my sounding board is my wife, because every day in the evening, we take a walk and we walk our dog and she talks about her life and what's going on. And I realize sometimes I'm not talking about my life. I'm talking about my book. And so I go, yeah, well, right. these people and they're here and they're doing this, but I don't know what comes next. And she said, well, why wouldn't they do this? And I go, oh, that's good. <laughs> so <laughs> so, uh, so she gets credit you know yeah yeah <laughs> she's like your a sort of like a, a dog walking um uh, writing partner <laughs> right yeah. so when in terms of the drafts uh i do the first one i just go through and i remember i, I think I, i'm gonna blank on who which author said this but their philosophy was they threw up in the morning and cleaned up in the afternoon so, <laughs> i like that <laughs> So I, I sort of let the first draft be the throw up. I just yeah. put it all there and I don't, uh, I don't look back uh, very much. I just keep moving through it. So uh, I, I just use the first draft to get something down there. The second draft is really when I go, oh, I have a better sense of who this character is. And I start to tweak it a little bit and I bring in uh, some nuance to them and I realize, oh, this needs to happen before that and then this over here. So that's when I do, I also, that's when I discover if, if I like the book or not. <laughs> you know? So, so uh, unfortunately I have so far, but I, I, you know, there are times when I write the book when I go, this is trick. And other times when I go, this is wonderful. So I don't really feel like I have a good, I'm not a good judge, but when I read that, the second time through, I get a better sense of what works and what doesn't. Then I go through it again a third time. And I thought I had a formula. I thought I had a formula like, I'll do five drafts and then I'll send it to Louise. But then I did one. I said, you know, this is pretty good after the third draft I'm sending. So I said, oh, now I'm, all, I'm getting better. I can do three drafts. And then the next <laughs> yeah. one I did seven. So uh, I realized. But that's a really it, good point, though, that, that I'm assuming that therefore that suggests to me that you're you're learning from your writing and your self-editing and also louise's editing so that as you progress through the books that you write it requires less of you each time because you're getting better at it because of the feedback you're getting and and the skills that you're learning as a writer as you go along well thank you for saying that i'd like to think that's true uh about a hundred it's like if you look at all the red on my uh, <laughs> what I said, Louise, you might have a second thought about that. But yeah, I do think because when Louise edits it, she what I've learned about editing is well, all right, what I've learned about editing <laughs> is editors are readers, and I'm not a reader. I'm a creator mm. and all my words are precious to me. And oh, don't take that away. But she's reading it 
as a reader, and she goes, this is not helping the plot, this is not moving it along, this tangent that you're waxing on here, David, is interesting, but who cares? So she, <laughs> yeah. she can be more on the straight and narrow. So when I edit her version of it, I can really see where she streamlined it and moved it along a lot better. So, so then I edit it, and then what Louise has taught me is, as good as she is and as good as I'm getting, we need somebody else at the end to uh, tidy it up and make sure all the I's are dotted and yep. whatnot. Then I said again to somebody else and then I read it after they get it. And then I have one last thing that I do after that that I'm gonna answer for you a little bit later. I'll keep you important thing though though that that um first of all i just wanted to like um go back to something you said a few minutes ago about how you start just not by worrying about you just like push it out there that's the first thing you just write and i i think that's a really valuable lesson for all um authors because if if you're if, if an author's worrying too much about nitty gritty um and 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 too much about always oh, that line crafted perfectly uh, the first draft it could be that that interferes with just the absolute foundational basic of story and i love the fact that you 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 take that first draft and 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 think of it in terms of this is where i just go there and and you put everything into it and it's and it's later that that kind of refinement process comes in um well um, i never used to until i pardon me for saying this until i wrote my dissertation I never, <laughs> I never handed in anything other than my first draft. So yeah. that was the only thing I'd ever written for school that I ever had took the time to do more than once. So now I'm sort of learning the value of looking at something a second, third, fourth, fifth time, and I can see how it improves with each reading. Mm. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I so think I that's another, sorry, Dave, David, I think that's another really very important point that you raise there for newer writers is that very often their only experience of of their writing being read by somebody else is handing it in at school to be marked by a mm -hmm. teacher and that's marked on the basis of whether the teacher regards something as right or wrong and and that fear sometimes of of handing the the work over um holds holds writers back because they anticipate that their editors response is going to be the same as a teacher's and and that's not what an editor's role is and I'm, as I'm sure you found out working with Louise we don't mark work and send it back it's a collaborative process and I think it's really nice to hear you say that that's not that's not what it is for you because that's not what it should be for anybody who who works with an editor so it's, it's nice to hear that yeah the marking not the collaboration yeah, absolutely <laughs> yes sorry just clarify that for me there we're a team and that yeah. uh, we're working together to make it as good as it can be so yeah. Yeah. Uh, i don't think students see their teacher as a teammate you know they're like yeah the other side they're not even though i think teachers are on your side i don't think students feel that so yep. much and, yep. yeah it's a different relationship isn't it yeah definitely yeah um yeah. just um also sort of going back to that thing that we were going to speak a little bit more about but that you um mentioned because um this issue of the that author editor relationship um that's another thing that i think some authors um 
at the beginning of a, of a if they've, they've got no experience of being editor before they're often really nervous about it i had one author describe um it to me as making the, when they received um when they knew that their the the revised version of the the manuscript was in their inbox um they had to really stop themselves feeling as if someone was going to be telling them that their baby was fat that was kind of the way she framed it and <laughs> yeah um and i was so it i think it's quite interesting um to hear your experiences of of of, of how you handle that that process of your novel being going going to a third party and and how that makes you feel in terms of anxiety and what advice you might give to authors who are holding back from working with an editor because they're afraid well i think the fear well people are afraid <laughs> we're we're afraid of people not liking us accepting us valuing us i think the fear is genuine uh the uh and as an author I think authors have the experience of how hard it is to get rid and edit their own words. I have paragraphs that I have to take out and I go, oh, I don't want to do this. And I actually cut and paste them and I have a little file of things I want to use sometime. But uh, <laughs> I, that file is getting bigger and bigger and I go, oh, I don't think I'll ever get around to that. But, uh, but I do think, I, I'm afraid that you're going to say that my baby is fat because they're beautiful in my eyes and but i only see the beauty and yeah. you you can sort of get through that and as i said you're the reader and you're gonna say you know it's beautiful but it could be even prettier if you did this or did that what i was afraid with editors is editor a would say this and editor b would say that and editors like everybody has their own opinion because it, it is subjective it absolutely is i mean especially at, not not at proofreading stage but I, I think at line level stage um yeah the work that kind of work that De denise and i both special on specialize in me from fiction point of view and her from a non-fiction but it is subjective to a degree sure and i and you know i I'm, please don't listen to this part uh, I, I don't take all of your suggestions i take the vast vast majority of them mm -hmm. but some of them i look at and go you know i'm keeping that yeah and, and that's yeah. absolutely your prerogative right and well it's my baby yeah, so, yeah. and if so, you want it to be fat then you can you can <laughs> there's times when you can it can be fat i like my books a little chubby uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. David, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about your process as an author and getting your insight in the relationship that you have with Louise as your editor. I think for our listeners who are also independent authors, it's really helpful for them to hear how other people approach um, writing and being edited because um, we can always learn from other people's experience. Can I add in something there Denise and um, one yeah. thing I thought our listeners might be interested in is that um, when we started working together David um, before he made a decision um, David asked if he could have a Skype call with me and right. um, because he wanted to meet me and obviously he's in Southern California and I'm in the wilds of, of East Anglia <laughs> yes, in yeah. you know 6,000 miles away or whatever and I, I, I'd be interested to hear your view on this David but certainly for me I thought it was um, I was so I was even more thrilled when you decided to work with me because um, I, I felt I'd 
got to know you a little just, just you know we only had an hour together or something but I did feel that I, I was working with a human being and someone who I liked and and that was I thought that was a really good foundation to, to the start of the process. It's funny to hear you say that because I would have thought that's the norm. For me, it's like, who am I working with here? I need to know you. I want to feel that we're on the same page, that you get my sensibilities, uh, and yeah. that, we, that you understand me. And so I think that was, it was critical. Uh, I wouldn't have uh, worked with you uh, if I hadn't had that opportunity. To get so if to I had you. said to you, like, no, I don't do Skype calls, that would have scuppered things quite early. Oh, that would I have. Would have yeah, yeah, I would have said thank you very much for sharing that and goodbye. Yeah, mm. and, I, and I think that's important because um, for any editors listening to this, because I do know some editors don't like the idea of having Skype conversations. They they want to do it all by email or and they don't want to have or phone conversations. They won't do phone conversations. On, I don't know about you, Denise, but I always think if an author wants that, there's a reason why they want it. And Yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily offer it up front, but if that's what the author wants, that's what they get. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is no, yeah. Yeah, there's no correct right way to do this. Once mm. again, it's what works for you, and that's what worked for me. If somebody else, they don't need that, they don't need that. Uh, yeah. But for me, as I said, I'm so much about relationships that I needed to go, oh, Louise and I, we get along, we understand each other, this is good. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So that's I have to point. say one thing, because I left you in suspense about the last little piece of <sighs> my uh, editing <laughs> process, which uh, I gather we're gonna be talking about in another podcast, and that yeah. is, yeah. I have a narrator, and I yeah. uh, get to uh, look at the book again when I work with my narrator, but I'll save that rest of that story for another day. Well, that's a little teaser. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh -huh. thank you for that, David. We'll, that, that's going to hook people into the next time you talk to us. <laughs> yeah. Or make sure that they don't come at all. You know? <laughs> no, no. People, are going, people are going to be intrigued now, definitely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's time for Editing Bytes. This is our regular feature where we recommend a tool or resource to help you on your writing journey. So Louise, what have you got for us this week? So my Editing Byte is dedicated to David because it's come up um, in conversation a few times during the editing process of his books. And it's about the issue of including lyrics in fiction. So there's a great article on the Book Baby website that offers some excellent advice on the matter, and it's called How to Legally Quote Song Lyrics in Your Book. Great. And mine is um, How to Write a Memoir that People Care About, which is a post on the NY Book Editor's blog. Memoirs can be quite tricky to structure in a way that's engaging, and I think this post has some great advice on technique great one so that's it we hope you've enjoyed this episode thank you so much for listening to the editing podcast you can rate review and subscribe to us via apple Podcasts, spotify or whichever platform you prefer and we'll put all the links we've mentioned in the show notes so you can grab everything there and thank you david once again for being our guest thank you david it's been an absolute joy <laughs> bye <Thank you>. bye-bye <laughs>